This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Single Tracks is psyched that Jameis Bikes has come on as a supporter of the podcast and is also a supporter of the website. Jameis has been designing and building quality bikes since 1979, and they were among the first to produce mountain bikes beginning in 1982. The brand has brought the world some iconic and award-winning mountain bikes over the past 40 or so years, and the Dragon has been the soul of the brand for decades. Introduced in 1993, the Jameis Dragon Hardtail delivers the feel that only comes with high-quality steel, and it's done so for nearly 30 years running. The newer Jameis Portal and Hardline full-suspension bikes feature the innovative and race-proven 3VO suspension platform, built into both carbon and aluminum frame options. You can check out this year's all-new Dragon and 3VO bikes, along with the entire lineup of Jameis high-performance mountain bikes, at JameisBikes.com. That's JameisBikes.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is John Yazee. John and Nadine Johnson own Zithta Adventures, an adventure travel company based in Arizona. A full-blooded Diné, John and his team run bike trips on Navajo land and use the proceeds to help fund a local youth cycling program. Thanks for joining us, John. Yeah, thank you for having us, too. I appreciate it. Well, tell us a bit about your background. How long have you been mountain biking? I've been biking since I was a kid. I grew up on a little hogan with my grandmother, and one of the only toys that I had that I really enjoyed was a, a Kmart special bike my grandma mm. and my mom both picked up for me. So it was probably, um, I can't remember all, but I'm going to say it was probably either a 16-inch or a 20-inch okay. wheel. Yeah. And um, I would just ride all over the prairie lands there in coal mine mesa arizona Mm -hmm. and then as i grew up my mom uh, got me um my first real bike uh it was uh, a bmx bike it was a schwinn predator i rode that to junior high high school and we had like a lot of uh, gt comp bikes so we were really into bmx and then um I joined the military, and then from there, um, I rode a mountain bike for a while. I picked up a used mountain bike from a friend of mine. I think it was uh, like an old Kona. It was full rigid. Mm-hmm. I rode that around in Washington a little bit, um, and I rode that in, um, when I was stationed in Iceland, and then again in Virginia Beach. Oh, wow. And then um, when I got out of the military, um, I started working in the welding field, to uh, try to help pay for some of my college, whatever the GI Bill wouldn't pick up. So mm-hmm. when I was in the military, picked up another diff- a different mountain bike. And so every town that I would go travel to, I would either take a BMX bike and a mountain bike just to try to um, <laughs> you know explore more in the cities I was working in. Yeah, wow. And then um, after I finished school, I became a teacher. And there was a lot of pe- teachers from the um, outside the reservations that came in that mountain bike too. So mm-hmm. it was great community and... I've just been riding bikes my whole life. Yeah. 
That's awesome. When you were a kid, was there a lot of uh, other kids that were riding bikes or was this like something that you were really into and like everybody else was like, what's up with John? Why is he, why is he so into bikes? <laughs> well, uh, growing up, it was just me and my grandmother. So I rode around the house. But when I went into the nearby city of Tuba City, neighbors, cousins, we all had bikes. So we were all over the place. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, what makes the Navajo Nation land so special and unique? And tell us a little bit about what the riding is like there as well. Well, I think obviously culture. So um, I think, well, it's hard to say. I mean, from from an insider's perspective, it's really hard to say. But for uh, I've asked friends and I think one of the things that they always say is that it's just unknown. It seems so closed off that um, um, that's what makes it interesting, I guess. A lot of my well-traveled friends, you know, they've been all over to, you know, um, Nepal and uh, Thailand riding bikes and traveling. And, you know, they come to the reservation and they kind of some of the bike riding that we've been doing, uh, they put like some of these places in their top five categories, which is kind of it kind of blows me away. I mean, I've, I've been, lived here my whole life and. I've never looked at it from that from their perspective, but I, I guess you know I, I try to drive through towns and pretend I don't know what's going on <laughs> uh, to get a better perspective or from their perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, you yourself though it sounds like you've ridden all over the world. I mean, Iceland and you know places, a lot of other countries. So, I mean, to you is is the riding there? on that level? I mean, is it, is it that interesting to you still? Do you, do you enjoy riding in Navajo nation? Oh yeah. I, I enjoy it a lot. I mean, here in Kayenta, it seems like, uh, every ride we do is different. Um, I, I've done, um, some bike pack routes with some friends and then mm-hmm. I'll take another group out of friends. And, um, it seems like there's always something different. Um, it, and I think a lot of that has to do with the the different people, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes for a different experience every time, even though it's the same route. Mm, yeah. But um, a lot, a lot of the rides here are. We don't have a lot of single track, so we um, ride a lot of double track and old sheep trails hmm. to uh, try to get over to our destinations where we're camping, which are usually like really cool overlooks. Um, some overlooks of um, the Monument Valley Tribal Park, um, and then. Uh, a lot of the places that we ride to um, are um, like historic. Uh, I don't want to say historic, but I mean they're they are um, a part of history, mm. like really old. I don't know, all the way back to the ancestral Puebloan years. Um, there's a lot of that, but also like modern day stuff, like things that happen with the mine up here. Mm. Um, they mined um, uranium not too far from us too. Oh wow! Uh, for yeah, so there's there's a lot of things that. Uh, there's like books, a lot of the rides that we do, the, um, the theme is books. Um, a lot of my friends will read some books about like mining or even, um, uh, uh the long walk or, or some of the history of Navajos and then they'll reach out to me, Hey, do you know where this book, you know, where it's centered around. And so that's how we create our routes, our routes on our website. Oh, cool. Well, we don't have any descriptions of routes on our websites because there's so many mm-hmm. um so when people reach out i kind of like ask them, well you know what are you looking for exactly yeah um, because it's hard to say i mean and, and a lot of these rides out here soft blow sand is always an obstacle here so hmm. um pushing hike bikes 
pushing bikes up steep inclines and Mm -hmm. you know it's about i would say most of our routes are about 60 to 70 percent double track and flat but Mm -hmm. you know once you start getting to where you want to where we're going to camp or overlooks or you know beautiful places to be there's a lot of hike of bikes to get up soft low sand we're going through uh old washes that haven't had water and for decades so they're really soft and but i mean the views are worth it i mean if some of my well travel friends are saying, you know, where we're going, it has been where they've been with me is in like the top five. I mean, it, it really says a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a lot of it is it's about a lot of things. It's about the people and the culture and the scenery and the history as well. And you mentioned that Navajo land is sort of it's closed off in a lot of ways to a lot of people. And you applied for permits to operate bike tours there back in 2016, but you didn't actually get permission until just last year, right? So three or four years at least. Why did it take so long to get the permits? Well, a major part of that being on hold after 2016 was an injury. I broke my leg pretty good riding some of the sandstone here. Oh, geez. Um, I, I went riding with some friends and the wind kind of blew me off my line and I just totally, oh man, I totally, uh, ate it pretty good. Jeez. But uh, that injury, after that injury, my broken ankle, I mean, it was bad. It was a compound fracture. My, my ankle was also, um, dislocated. So the bone actually came through, you know, out of my leg. And oh. uh, so I sat out there for six hours, just wow. kind of suffering until I finally was able to get a medevac out. They didn't, there was, we, we, it took like three, (laughs) three different hospitals to finally get one to come out because most of those medevac helicopters didn't want to come because it was so windy. Oh, jeez. So they actually, they sent a search and rescue to hike out to where we were. And when they got there, you know, they had to confirm, yeah, we can't carry this guy out. He needs a medevac. So we tried another um, hospital in Gallup, New Mexico. And so. They were able to come out, scoop me up, and they took me to Farmington, and I went straight to surgery there. I had some vascular, I had vascular surgery and some of the blood vessels because my leg was pretty busted up. Oh wow! And then um, I remember coming to a little bit, and then meeting the orthopedic surgeon, and he, he had come, <laughs> been called in from an event. He was in a tuxedo and stuff, mm-hmm. and <laughs> so I had orthopedic surgery and. I don't know, like 12, 16 hours later, I started waking up and I had an external fixator on my foot. Yeah, so it was a pretty bad injury, but like that injury led to other things. It actually led to a, um, a release of a blood clot where I lost vision in my eye. Oh, man. Just all kinds of stuff. So I took quite a bit of time off to heal. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of why we didn't start anything until 2020. Mm-hmm. We didn't start pursuing permits again until 2019. Okay. All of 2019 was the all the years that I was getting rejected. Mm-hmm. And one of the bit the reason I was getting rejected was because there was no category for bikes when I was applying for permits. Hmm. So Navajo Nation has a law, Title Five, that describes permitting for tourism. Mm-hmm. So. In that law, when you apply for permits, you know, you, you'll pick a category. Like one is like for Jeep tours, two is horseback, uh-huh. three is hiking, four is, uh, I don't remember, watercraft and hot air balloons and so on. But <laughs> none of, none of the, yeah, but none of the categories in there had bikes in there. Huh. And, um, so we would go to the, uh, Winderock office, our capital, 
where the main parks and rec is. We would get permit application, we'd fill it out, we'd pay the fees, and then they would um, assign us to a park office that was in our geographical location. So mm-hmm. our, our park office that we were assigned to is Monument Valley Tribal Parks. And there was kind of a disconnect. Now, I don't want to get anybody in trouble point names, but there was a disconnect between the main office and the sub office and where the main office was saying, sure, here, you know, we cashed your check. You're good to go. And then we'd go apply for permits mm-hmm. for a specific weekend or something. And we'd always get rejected because they would say there's no bikes allowed. I'm like, I'm not going to the park. I'm not riding in the park. We're riding right. yeah, all over, but they wouldn't give me permits. So it took almost, I don't know, months and months to battle that. And mm-hmm. so we went back to the Winderock office and kind of, you know, gave them, you know, what we'd experienced. Like, hey, you know, those guys aren't giving us permits because, you know, there's no category. So mm. um, they would just tell us, okay, well you know, rather than calling the office and say, you know, we've approved these guys here. Mm -hmm. So let these guys have their permits. They've already paid their fees. They've got commercial insurance. Mm -hmm. They have all their uh, emergency protocol plan in place with us. We had, and now we have a COVID plan with them and it's all approved. But Mm. anyway, we got the permit. We finally got the, you know, the thumbs up uh, the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. So we decided, you know, just because of financial records, we would start in 2020. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we had some tours booked and we were ready to go. And I went to a school board retreat in like the beginning of March of 2020. And right after that was my first tour. But I remember sitting in that board retreat and seeing my phone blow up about, hey, there's COVID, COVID that. Right. The COVID, our coronavirus is like right down the road. Mm-hmm. And so the next day, um, our Navajo Nation president closed everything, closed all tourism. So. Yeah, we had to cancel all those tours. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about that, how you had to adapt. But first, I'm curious, why do you think there wasn't a, a category for bike tourism? I'm, I'm surprised that nobody had, had done this before. Do you think you think there's a reason for that? Um, I, I, I think that whoever was drafting a law at the time, and because I, I don't remember how old this, the, the law is that they used to define tourism, but... I think there's this misconception that bikes are going to tear up everything. Hmm. Bikes are going to go off the path. Bikes are going to ruin the land. Mm -hmm. But uh, when actually our tour company, we stay on the same paths as the Jeep tours do. Right. And they allow Jeep tours. seems like that would (laughs) be pretty bad too. Yeah. And what's, what's funny about it is, we have this um, route that goes to um, Hunts Mesa, mm-hmm. and every time we hit sand or some obstacle, we just get off our bikes and walk right through it. Right. But you can see those Jeep tour guys making another route around, and they're like, "No, that's yeah, that's kind of counterintuitive. What we want to do, we want ecotourism and less right. less of a carbon footprint and low impact tourism is what we want to do." Mm-hmm. So I, I think the misconception is that bikes are bad for the environment when actually they're not. Our new – I've been meeting with some of our council delegates and some of our leaders, and they understand that. They understand that bikes are actually better for the environment, that they do less impact. But it's just trying to get that law changed. I'm working with a couple of council delegates now to amend that law to include bike packing and bikes hmm. in that in the um, permitting category yeah. as a category – for permits now. Yeah. 
That's cool. Well, yeah, you mentioned though that COVID kind of threw a wrench into your plans to launch tours in 2020. So how were you able to adapt? It sounds like you're starting to ramp back up and doing some private tours, but yeah, tell us a bit about, about how you had to make some changes. Well, um, obviously, um, we weren't able to run tours, which we were kind of bummed out. So we canceled the whole bunch. And mm-hmm. I was sitting down with Doom or Steve Fastbinder and Liz Scully from Four Corners Guides. They have a guide company and we were sitting down and they, they've always talked about doing, um, you know, reaching out and doing some youth stuff mm-hmm. with Navajo kids. And so I was their, um, their contact for that. And so. That was kind of what inspired me to do a youth thing. So we, we were able to um, look at the COVID legislation and some of the um, executive orders that our Navajo Nation president issued about COVID. Mm-hmm. And there were some, you know, loopholes in there. I mean, I, I won't say that we were trying to break the law, but, mm-hmm. I you know, after, you know, almost three or four months of COVID and seeing how we had a huge spike on the Navajo Nation, we were like mm-hmm. one of the the fastest growing COVID positive places and right. people getting sick for a while there. But after we, um, we instituted masks mandates and social distancing and some of the businesses were closed down. And a- as we learned more about COVID, we realized that mitigation strategies work well, as long as you do them and you're hundred percent abiding by the mitigation strategies, you know, we would be fine. Mm -hmm. So those weekends that we had booked tours, we were kind of bummed out. So we actually started to um, reach out to some youth bike organizations. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a um, team of nicotine, the Comp, not too far from us. They have bikes. So we were actually talking with them and I know their coach a little bit. And we were talking about, um, you know, about spreading bike packing. So they were doing um, some uh, maintenance clinics with Silver Stallion in some of the areas because, I mean, you saw how bikes, you know, were hard to come by during yeah. the, during the um, pandemic. I mean, yeah. I couldn't I, I went to Walmart to go shopping one time and there was nothing on the shelves. I went, went to Target next door and it was the same thing. I was it was blown. I was blown away. So. Because of all the demand for bikes on the reservations and people on the reservation and people couldn't get bikes, most of the bikes that people had, you know, there were minor repairs, flat tires, brake cables, little things like that. But they, some of our um, tribal members didn't know how to repair those. So they just kind of, you know, they just became yard ornaments and stuff. <laughs> so the youth organize are the organization silver stallion. They brought their mobile ride clinic and they did a few of those bike maintenance clinics that mm-hmm. I was able to attend. That's how I was able to recruit some kids. To, um, I talked to them and say, you know, can, do you have any kids that want to learn to bike pack? Cause I, we had some spare bikes. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to have, I have four bikes and uh, my partner Nadine has two. So we were thinking we could lend them out. So by the time we, recruited some kids covid was starting to spike again but we still had a few of those loopholes in our executive orders that said you know we can still exercise within five miles of our residence we can still get out Hmm. Uh, we can meet in gatherings of no more than five and Mm -hmm. you know things like that so we decided to go ahead and um, recruit three kids that were all in the same household Mm -hmm. so it would be easier to and we wanted them to be able to learn a lot about bike packing. So when we went back to that Diné comp team, 
you know, they would, they were able to help me out because mm. I had learned from my first youth group that there needs to be a lot of pre-teaching or whatever you call it, but right. putting bags together and packing because we spent like four or five hours packing bikes and we only <laughs> rode for like two, <laughs> two hours. Wow. And, yeah. And then in the morning, again, packing up camp and repacking your bike was three or four hours and the ride home was like 45 minutes. <laughs> So we camped somewhere local. Uh, we just found some slick rock that we, you know, was flat. And we could set up a little campground here in Kayanta that was about five miles from the house. Mm-hmm. So that that's how we uh, were able to adapt. Is uh, we were able to still run, I guess, tours, but with youth and trying to teach them how to do it. So backing back up a little bit, Four Corners guides wanted to take some youth bike bike pack rafting, mm-hmm. and I was like, man. I, so when we took those kids out and I was thinking about that, you know, I was like, no, they need, these kids got to keep going out and out because if we're going to add pack rafts to the equation, that's going <laughs> to like blow their minds trying. We were going to spend <laughs> six hours packing and less time boating and riding. Yeah. So that's why we created a youth series. So it would be a series of trips, different locations, different mm-hmm. mileages. So these kids were able to learn more than just, you know, trying to do one trip and then getting thrown them to the wolves. And, um, and by that, I mean, doom fast binder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what bike rafting is and the role tourism plays in supporting local economies. Are you enjoying the single tracks podcast? Well, we could use your support. The small but dedicated single tracks team works hard to share the mountain bike information that inspires epic adventures through this podcast, our worldwide database of trail maps and photos and daily news and reviews on the website. So consider becoming a monthly annual or lifetime pro supporter and enjoy ad free browsing on the website, free single tracks stickers in the mail and discounts on merch for as little as $3 per month. Go to singletracks.com slash support to sign up and to find out other ways you can help support our mission. That's singletracks.com slash support. Thank you and happy trails. And we're back. So John, on your Instagram page, I see photos of bikes being carried in river rafts and you mentioned bike rafting. I'm curious to know, how is it different from bikepacking or is it like part of it? Like you're able to kind of incorporate it into a traditional bikepacking trip. How does, how does that work? Well, um, yeah, they're, they're, that's exactly, I mean, they're, they're both related mm-hmm. in that we're, we can explore more terrain with the raft on the bike. Hmm. So for example, um, like if, like if we were bikepacking, you're riding to some beautiful place or some wilderness area, you set up camp and, you know, you do overnight or multiple days, but now with the raft, you're able to hit a river mm-hmm. and those rafts are, you know, they're so small. They, they can just roll up and fit on your handlebar or in a backpack or, Oh wow. And you can inflate them and then break your bike down, take the frame or the wheels off your frame, stack them on the front part of your bike. And then now you can paddle down a river for a couple of miles and then, yeah. Or cross the lake to the other side and then put your, take your raft and put it back on your bike and then continue riding. So it's incorporating rafting with bikepacking. Yeah, that's cool. Does everybody carry their own raft? Is this, is it, are they like one-person rafts? Yep, they are one-person rafts. 
Um, they, they make a couple of like one and a half persons, but, um, the bigger you go, obviously, the more weight you're adding to your bike because you've got to be able to carry paddles and a PFD as well. Right. Oh, geez. I don't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. And then the bike itself, I mean, is, I guess bikes aren't that heavy and there's probably room on the raft, but I would also worry about like puncturing the raft. So I guess you got to pack the bike on top of the raft pretty carefully. Right, right. Um, the, the material on some of the, like these rafts are so well made. I mean, alpaca rafts is what we've been using. And hmm. I mean, you're scraping off sharp rocks and stuff and it still holds up. Hmm. And Doom actually has a, a cool idea or I mean, I'm sure it's been around, but on his paddle, he has really good. I don't know what the tape is, but if you get a, a tear or a puncture, you just pull the tape off your paddle and covers the, oh, cool. covers it and no leaks until you can get in and make a repair. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you kind of said that the trips that you're conducting, a lot of them are kind of customized to what people want to see and what they want to do. Tell us a little bit more about how the trips are set up and do you, are you only doing overnight trips or do you also do day trips as well? Well, we, we do overnight trips and we do uh, day trips. That's it's kind of a custom tour. I mean, if people can't get out for an overnighter or they're a little hesitant in bikepacking, well, we have some cool routes locally and some single track that, you know, people can pay half a day to come and ride and explore and mm-hmm. see some cool stuff. And then we have, you know, really easy overnighters, but the views aren't that great. The best views are all outside of 35 or 20 to 30 mile rides away. Okay. Um, and we've done multiple nights, um, in our area, um, we used to have this, um, Kianta mine and Black Mesa mine because there, there was no demand for coal anymore. They closed up the mines and a lot of the economy here has dried up. Mm. So one of our, um, our leaders, our council delegates and some of our chapter officials, they want to start this initiative called the Tri-City Tourism Initiative. But it involves the three cities that are close to Kayenta, which are Kayenta, Denahutso, and Chilchimbato. They want to do a little triangle and one city, Denahutso, there's tons of slick rock there. They want to make that into a, an outdoor recreation area. Oh, cool. And, and then the other city over is Chilchimbato where they want to make into a cultural place, kind of like a mini Santa Fe. They, hmm. they have the world's largest rug that was wo- hand-woven. Oh, wow. Um, they w- want to put on display in like a little um, a visitor center. Mm-hmm. And then Kayenta would be the hub, like, you know, where you're going to have all your eateries and mm-hmm. motels and stuff. So when, when that initiative came out, we created a route to go. So not only could people um, see it by driving and you know spending some time in those two towns or three towns you know we put a bike pack route together mm. it's a total of like 98 miles and, and it's definitely oh wow pretty i'm not going to say intense it's not intense but um there's soft blow sand it's a lot of flat riding but it still takes you know four to six hours to do mm-hmm. so we put you know we have that ability to do up to five nights but Again, my issue is that I'm still full-time employed. Right. So a lot of these are going to just be weekends until we start building more infrastructure capacity. And maybe we can hire another guide if, um, that can do day trips and stuff too, if, mm-hmm. if everything works out. 
Yeah. What is the best season for these types of trips? I mean, sounds like with, with your full-time job, best season for you is the summertime, but when's like the weather good and, and people are going to really enjoy the trip the most? Um, we, we try to shut down for the summer, um, because it's so hot and dry. Yeah. And I think the best times of the year are September is still hot. We'll open up in September, but October through April are some of the best, um, seasons. Mm. I like cold camping. I mean, it doesn't get below zero degrees out here, but mm. I like to get out in the winter time and take a zero degree bag. So I'm hoping we can still book some tours. It'd be cool to do some, you know, run some, guide some trips this winter. Yeah. And what's the cost? I imagine it depends on the trip and the number of days, but what what is sort of the, the range of costs that these trips? On our website, um, we have 1700 for a group for 48 hours, whatever you want to do for 48 hours. So the group came, um, the biggest group, our, our group ratio is one to four for God. So I can okay. take four people out. If Nadine wants to join, we can do, you know, eight. Mm-hmm. But um, at the moment, because of the law, or they've opened up Parks and Rec, but they opened it up to 50% capacity. Mm-hmm. If it should run like that into the fall, I think I could be able to do two, just just because I want to stay within the within the bounds right. of our um, executive orders. Yeah. Well, it seems like biking in particular is a really good way to immerse yourself and really connect with the environment and the community. Beyond helping guests with the logistics of a bike trip in the Navajo Nation, are you able to provide history and context as well? Sounds like there are a number of books that people can read, but I imagine you also have a lot of local knowledge that you're able to share with folks. Yes. Um, I When I first moved to this region, I was so... I, I was really inspired to learn about the area. And so, and, and a lot of that was just, you know, talking with neighbors and people I knew um, because I was, I'm in education. I know a lot of the teachers here before I even moved here. So just talking with them, you know, they're always saying, Hey, you know, um, have you ever ridden here? Or did you know about this and that? Or did you know about like a ride up on top of Black Mesa, that little Canyon you see there, um, that's where the, the Navajo or the Neh held off the Spaniards in the 15, 1600s. And mm-hmm. so, um, things like that, I'm talking with people and then that inspires me to pick up books and read more or ask more questions for the locals. Yeah. So that's how I gained a little bit of knowledge about the area, uh, and reading more and asking questions. Mm-hmm. But growing up, my family was really traditional, um, traditional in Navajo culture. So our creation stories were told to me as a kid, but, um, be, just, you know, I, I felt like I was ADHD growing up because I, and I couldn't pay attention or read and all that. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and I still have those bouts with it even today. But, um, so growing up, my grandma used to share these stories with me about, you know, um, animals and about like our twin warriors and how, or how they defeated, um, monsters and they made the world safe for Diné. Mm-hmm. And so, some of these stories like Comb Ridge next to us, the geographical landscapes are related to these stories. And some mm. of these big um, spires or, um, or volcanic plugs that pop up here and there, mm-hmm. they all are part of those stories. So when I started riding in this area, I realized that, hey, that 
I remember a story now about my grandma telling me about yeah. the monster being slayed and how it fell down and the backbone is right here. And, you know, riding on Comb Ridge, it start, you know, all those lights start to go off that, wow, mm-hmm. I can finally understand now um, the stories better because I'm seeing these geographical landscapes. I'm seeing how the, uh, the I'm seeing like these stories come alive by riding here. And that was one of the reasons we wanted to involve the youth because I look back and, you know, think that if I were to be able to see these things mm-hmm. and hear these stories as a kid, it would have made more sense. Oh, yeah. So a part of our, um, a part of our, our uh, youth program is to share those stories and, and um, remind kids that, you know, we have a rich culture mm-hmm. and um, it's something worth fighting for. It's something that, everybody needs to do is um, try to help preserve our culture somehow. Yeah. So I share those stories on some of our trips. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, it sounds like John, you and Nadine are the main guides uh, for the bike trips. Do you see some of these youth as folks who potentially maybe one day uh, will be leading trips uh, for your guiding company as well? Um, That's our hopes is, um, that um see if we were to um amend that title five law include bikes i'm kind of afraid that like some of these companies are going to go all willy-nilly mm-hmm. bike tours too yeah so and and i don't want anybody to ruin or you know to mess up the bike part of um tourism hmm. i don't want anybody to get hurt and then they turn around and say you know because company X or Y did this and now we're not allowing bikes anymore because somebody got hurt bad or lost their life. It reflects on the nation. I don't want that. So with our youth program, we want to be able to train these kids, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We want them to be able to have experience enough to assess somebody else's experience with a bike. I mean, we don't want these kids to look at somebody and say, Hey, you know, we're going to take you 70 miles and people aren't capable of it. Right. So that's part of our mission. And then plus, once we start raising money, we want to fund this youth program so we can get these kids WAFA certified, first aid, CPR, Mm -hmm. get them their own gear so um, they can help us. Or maybe they'll get employed by one of those Jeep companies to do um, the bike part. You know, I I don't want to be possessive over bike packing and say it's oh no i'm the only one (laughs) i want to see everybody grow i want to see bikes all i want to be able to ride from here from you know to the next town or run into people who are biking in the bike packing in the opposite direction yeah it's you need a whole ecosystem and there are a lot of different parts to that and it sounds like you know you're starting at the most important part with the people and sort of introducing this to folks, especially younger folks, so that they can sort of grow with it and, and find opportunities and, and to do it responsibly, which is really cool. Yeah, that's a big part of our program. Leave no trace and all. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what role do you think tourism can play in terms of boosting the local economy? Well, I, well, I think not so much bikepacking because um, – that's a small audience, mm-hmm. but like if we were to have, you know, legit trail systems, there are trail systems here, but we need to, you know, make them legit and mm-hmm. um, make them public so people can spend more time in, in Kayenta. Yeah. If we had that Tri-City uh, tourism 
initiative up and running. It's an opportunity for people to spend more time in Canada. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you spend more time, you spend a little bit more money in local shops and vendors and you know our grocery store, gas here. The gas tax comes back to the nation too. So mm-hmm. that's how I think we can boost it. I mean, if you take a look at Sedona and Moab, wow. You know, I, I was trying to put a presentation together for our school board retreat next week about like how outdoor recreation, you know, can play a big part on building back uh, our economy here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm pulling like all these reports from like all mining towns that have been run down, like um, mm-hmm. Fruita and Moab and yeah. all these mining towns, you know, in Oregon, uh, logging towns mm-hmm. that, you know, the demand's low, so they, you know, they added outdoor tourism and and some of these places are seeing like three quarters of a million an, or a billion annually. Yeah. Um, so I think there are the potentials there, but the the hard part is getting the right group of people to get started. Mm-hmm. Because I've been on this Tri City Tourism um, committee for about three or four months now, and we're still meeting and talking about it, but we haven't really got any boots on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 This stuff definitely takes time. You mentioned that there is sort of some single track that exists currently. Is, is that open to the public? Like can people, tourists come in and ride those trails and, you know, eat it, eat at restaurants and fill up their gas tanks currently, or is, is something need to change before that's even able to happen? Well, that, that single track that we had, um, there, there's a process that the Navajo Nation uses to create legitimate trails Mm. and one is you find the area you kind of get a gps track down you take it to the chapter house Mm -hmm. um, for approval but in that approval process you need to have an archaeological survey Mm -hmm. a biological survey and you have to get um, an approval for from whoever uh, may own grazing rights to that area okay and so once all those things clear and the trail becomes legitimate, I think, you know, it'd be open to anybody coming through mm. tourists okay. and all that. But at the moment, we haven't got the uh, the clearance from the uh, grazing committee, which is me attending a chapter house and presenting. Mm-hmm. But because of COVID, they're not having any additional um, things on their agendas at the local government here where, you know, where we'd fit right in. And plus there's still Zoom meeting and it's hard to talk to people. They're all zoomed out. They don't pay attention. Right. Yeah. And, and the people that need to be there are, are never there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Well, is there one thing that you wish more people could understand or know about the Navajo culture? Um, yeah, the biggest thing is, um, you know, despite what you see on TV and, and whatever, um, negative perceptions you have by traveling through or, the biggest thing that I'd like people to know is that the Navajo people and the culture is based on kike. That means like family relationships. Mm. You know, all of us are born and we are all um, have an identity mm-hmm. the day we're born. Um, and that's our clanship. We have four clans that we, um, we uh, use to um, identify ourselves. And mm-hmm. when we do, um, other people identify themselves when you meet and greet each other. Mm-hmm. So you're able to develop some kind of family relationship with other people's clans. And even with our plants and animals and the, the trees and every living thing around us, 
we have some kind of relationship with that. Each, you know, each item out that I just named has its own story and how it ties in with the net culture. So that's what I'd like people to know is that our Navajo Nation and culture is based on our family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's something that hopefully everybody can connect with the idea of family and, and the environment and how, how we're all connected. That's awesome. Right. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us, taking the time uh, to tell us about the work you're doing there and also for introducing us to the idea of bike rafting. That sounds amazing. Thanks. Sure. Thank you for having me. Well, you can find more information about Zithaha Adventures on Instagram and also on the web. We'll have links to both of those in the show notes. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.